0: Welcome to An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. I'm your host Josh. I appreciate you joining me as I explore new ways of making recovery more accessible to folks that may struggle with the God aspect of some recovery programs. All are welcome here. The primary purpose of this podcast is to read from the big book through the eyes of an atheist and try to make sense of all the God stuff in there. Along the way I hope to hear and share the stories of others while learning other ways of keeping sober. Hopefully this results in others learning as well. In today's episode I'm going to be Covering chapter two of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, there is a solution. It's pages 17 through 29. I think that depends on the version of the book you have I've been using an app as my book uh, that's just kind of a heads up that if you don't have a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous there is a free app that you can download at least in the Android store that I know of not only does it offer the big book for free uh, I, I think they subsist on ads and donations but there is a audio version of the book that you can get Uh, There's a meeting schedule inside the app, and there's even a community that you can reach out to and post comments on and make comments on other posts. Uh, And there is a 24 7 addiction help hotline. through this app so it's pretty it's pretty robust i was pretty surprised by the app but this is what i've been using for my my podcasting is what i've been using when i need to read out of the book if i choose to do so and it's just called the aa big book in the android store so if you are looking for an option that you can have in your pocket or if you just are not with if you just do not have the literature and you you don't feel comfortable asking for a book for free or whatever reason there's there's no there's no real excuse to not have this book anymore The downside is that it could be a little off from other people's books if they're trying to follow along only simply because of the formatting so the pages i might tell you might just not be what's lining up in the actual book i i have a big book i've just left it over at my sponsors and i honestly just haven't been over there to get it so that's on me but it does give me an opportunity to share that there is an app it's a very good app with it i've been able to for free keep up on reading out of the book as well as um Even just connecting with people in the community. But today is going to be all about there is a solution. First though, per ritual, I guess, uh, I read out of the Daily Stoic. By Ryan Holiday and Stephen Hanselman. For those that aren't aware, this is it's 366 meditations on wisdom, perseverance, and the art of living. It's, it's basically an, a, a collection of stoic quotes and phrases that people like Marcus Aurelius, uh, Seneca, Epictetus, um have read or, or spoken over the years. And then it's Ryan Holiday and Stephen Hanselman's take on that. Uh, I like this book as a way of kind of starting the day. So I'm using it as a way to start the podcast. Uh, As I've said before, I understand that some of the passages and even some of the philosophers that they quote have had a tendency to be a little gaudy. Um, so far we haven't ran into that while I read this on the podcast, but when we do, we'll just cover that. Like the main, the real main focus of this podcast isn't necessarily to just even suggest that the big book is the only way to stay sober. I, you know, I can't explain enough just how important it was for me while I was getting sober to feel comfortable in meetings. And I say that because I had a hard time finding a meeting for any other type of recovery program out there. I live in in a fairly busy metropolitan style city, but when I needed a meeting, the closest one to me at the time that I needed it that wasn't AA, that wasn't some sort of Religious styled AA or fundamentalist AA was like an hour away, and I didn't have a car. Or I didn't have access to one. So it wasn't an option, really. We weren't doing Zoom meetings. That wasn't really a thing. So I just sucked it up and went to an AA meeting, and I didn't drink that day. What I found was even though I had trouble with the God aspect, I wasn't going to let that be a reason I didn't get sober. I knew sobriety was here in these. Programs and in these walls. And I knew that if I was going to allow the word God to keep me from getting sober, that it really wasn't going to take much else, you know? So I kind of had to just get over it. And the best way that I found to get over it was to kind of dissect what the word means to me, why I hated it at that time, or why it made me uncomfortable. I guess not hated it. That was more of my youth. I was like that in my youth a lot. But what about it made it uncomfortable? What about it made it so that I couldn't feel comfortable in a meeting, even if I knew that just being in one could keep me sober for that day. So this podcast is me just sort of reaffirming and re-exploring a lot of these, these ideas that I've had and... Yeah, part of that means reading out of a book that to me helps me start my day thinking about something other than what I've just picked up off my phone or some bit of news or some bit of stress that maybe carried over from the night before or, you know, feeling dread about things. It just has me thinking in a constructive way about something that maybe didn't pop into my own head and it creates kind of a ritual that allows me to start my day in a way that's healthy and productive. At times, the reading doesn't have anything to do with how my day is going to go, and it doesn't always lead to how my day is like shaped. A lot of the times, it just sort of helps me digest something maybe I've been mulling over. Uh, it gives me something I can consider about maybe a problem that I've been dealing with, uh, or it allows something to kind of be bouncing around my head for when a a problem sort of pops up later. Um, And it doesn't have to be this book for anybody else out there. It doesn't even have to be a ritual. This is just my thing that I do. Why I can use something that does have aspects of a god of some kind, even though they weren't Christian. They probably would have been. It sounds like Seneca would definitely have been a Christian um, if given the opportunity to have been. The reason why I can use something like this is I can pick apart and pick through the pieces that apply to me. And that's what my purpose of this whole podcast is, is to do that with Alcoholics Anonymous. And not just Alcoholics Anonymous, but again, it's its the biggest program in the world. I can go anywhere. I can go right now. I could get on an airplane, go to London, get there and probably be able to find a meeting as soon as I land or maybe one within a few minutes. There, that's a major thing. When you're struggling, for me, when I am struggling, to be able to get plugged in and connected with other people that are sober, even if they do have a fundamental, uh, just a fundamental difference in how they approach or participate in this program, that fellowship is still existent. That fellowship is still there for the purpose of keeping people sober. The ideals of AA, of reaching out your hand, of being the hand of AA is still there. That doesn't mean that every single meeting, everybody's just a fucking ray of sunshine or even helpful. But if we're going to go with like the law of average, I'd rather be able to be comfortable going into the most uncomfortable place if I need it to stay sober. If my program of choice was, was lifering and I don't live in LA, it's a very good possibility. I'm just going to have to wait to either hear from somebody or to get into a meeting. Now, yeah, there, there doesn't Necessarily mean that AA has a meeting literally every second of every day, but it's just another option. I'm all about having all available options at the ready should I need them. At least that's how I've grown into recovery for me. Not being shy to go to an NA meeting if I need to, even though drugs weren't my primary issue. To set aside any kind of misgivings I might have about going to a, a group that very specifically has God in the title of the group knowing what kind of a group it's going to be that I'm going to be getting myself into. More often than not, I have found myself in those meetings and immediately welcomed despite the fact that i'm an atheist yeah sometimes people share at me and some people might have some questions on me being an atheist i've never really felt like pressured uh, in the in a way that makes me think i can't be there because i'm not all about the god stuff but there's just so much importance to that for me and i have a feeling i'm not alone when I've been to meetings and I've seen people be uncomfortable that don't necessarily believe in all this God stuff, or I hear people talk about how they just got turned off from the program, I, I just it makes me feel like, okay, I'm not alone. I know other people are struggling with this. And th- so, yeah, that's the purpose of the the, the podcast. I'm probably going to talk about this a lot because I really feel very passionate about it. I feel passionate about the idea that if if my interest in in staying sober extends to me being as comfortable as I can be, even in meetings that maybe aren't necessarily specifically meant for me in my position, then I feel like other people could benefit from that as well or, or people that are just struggling with with this. I mean, yeah, it's pretty baked into the title of the the podcast and my trailer and stuff like that but any new listeners that might be just popping in on this episode, uh, even though this is a fairly new podcast, this is, you know, episode five, I believe, then I want them to also still hear this message. I won't go over this every single time. I won't spend 10 minutes on it like I have now, but it just sort of popped up because I was reading one of the previous passages in this book, The Daily Stoic. It was very God-heavy, it, you know, the very godly style kind of writing. And I just, I just thought, you know... I have a feeling someone's going to know about this book and ask me, why are you even choosing that book if you're an atheist? And that's the reason. Like, I I can read this book and know that there's a lot of God stuff in here and still dig to the parts that apply to me and help me throughout my day-to-day life. Even while knowing there, there might be something a little better, but this has worked really well for me. So I hope it works for other people. Uh, in the future, I'm open to reading from other different types of daily meditations i've read a few that were secular and they didn't really do a lot for me i think there's a book called beyond belief agnostic musings for 12-step life that we use in our secular meeting and while i enjoy it for leading or starting a meeting it doesn't seem to really work for me for starting my day so Long story short, I'm open to suggestions, but for now, this has really worked for me and I really enjoy what I've gained from it. So hopefully others do the same. So I'm front loading some of these episodes. So the dates are going to be a little off on these. I'm not sure when they'll or if they'll ever catch up to when I release these. Uh, But this is July 10th. Love the humble art. Love the humble art you have learned and take rest in it. Pass through the remainder of your days as one who wholeheartedly entrusts all possessions to the gods, making yourself neither a tyrant nor a slave to any person. Marcus Aurelius, Meditations, 431. Stop by a comedy club any weekend night in New York or Los Angeles and you're likely to find some of the world's biggest and most commercially successful comedians in there, workshopping their craft for just a handful of people. Though they make a fortune in movies or on the road, there they are practicing the most basic form of their art. If you ask any of them, why are you doing this? Why do you still perform? The answer is usually because I'm good at it, because I love it, because I want to get better, because I thrive on connecting with an audience, because I just can't not do it. It's not work for them to get up on stage at Caroline's or the Comedy Cellar at 1 a.m. It's invigorating. They don't have to do it. They're free, and they choose this. Whatever humble art you practice, are you sure you're making the time for it? Are you loving what you do enough to make the time? Can you trust that if you put in the effort, the rest will take care of itself? Because it will. Love the craft. Be a craftsman. So at first, it was easy for me to look at this from like the lens of a career path or some kind of a hobby, since that's sort of how the secondary reading kind of frames it. But after rereading it again, uh, it's obvious that that it could be applied to recovery. Like I said before, sometimes I miss the obvious and sometimes I overthink things. So my initial sort of take on this was completely missing the best applicable point, which is, you know, my recovery at this point needs to be my craft. It needs to be my humble art. If that's gonna be the case, then what am I doing to not necessarily perfect it, you know, progress over perfection, but what am I doing to really put the work in How am I workshopping it? What am I doing to make my recovery as strong as it can be? You know, when I was in the meeting the other day, someone was saying that, uh, it was a secular meeting, somebody was saying that despite their best efforts, whenever they uh, apply recovery, whenever they're inside their recovery, their life improves. That's just the truth for me too. That's just how it works for me as well. So when I rest on my laurels and I feel... I, I've been uh, I've been sober for two and a half years, which isn't you know it's a it's a long time for me in this instance. You know I've had long term sobriety, almost eight years, over eight years. Uh, but this two and a half has been of a quality that it's a long time. My intentional sobriety this last time was so much more purpose driven, for the most part, even when I wasn't really as deeply in my recovery as I should have been. The work that I had done and have done. Permeated my life even when I wasn't in recovery. And that was kind of a problem. Not saying that there's anything wrong with my recovery being strong enough that even when I'm not actively seeking it out, it still has a positive effect in my life. But when you're like me, when you're someone who at work can take an eight hour shift, you know, eight hours worth of work, figure out a way to get it done in two hours and screw off for six, that's gonna, that's how I'm gonna approach things like recovery. Even though I know better, and while like I've said before, I didn't backslide. My progress didn't lessen. Uh, I definitely was resting on my laurels. I, you know, I was having that feeling of graduating. That's what I was going with. How much time I've had after after a few years. You know, it's easy for me to think in my head. Well, I've been to a hundred meetings, hundreds of meetings. I've read the books. I've done the stuff. So, you know. As long as I keep doing this stuff, then I don't have to do any of that work anymore, or at least I don't have to do it as much or as intentional. And that's just not the truth of it. That's, that's setting myself up for disaster. And that's why, again, that's why I started the podcast. That's why I started going back to meetings. That's why I started reaching back out to people. So for me, it can't be, what do I plan on doing anymore, right? I have to look at what I am going to do. Like, what am I doing? And if I say that I'm gonna attend more meetings and I miss an opportunity to attend a meeting, am I practicing that humble craft? Am I workshopping? Am I getting up on that stage and telling those jokes? If I'm just resting on the work that's been done, how long until that runs out? How long until my, my recovery is just kind of a shell of itself? Until I'm a shell of myself? When do I wake up from that dream? It takes me a long time to realize that there's something wrong. Usually, by the time I do, I've laid some groundwork and built some bad habits that are going to take a long time to recover from. So, for me, what I get out of this reading is I need to continue to practice. I have to do more than just, you know, take in the amount of work I did in the past and rest on that and just hope it's going to carry me through the dark times. And it's not like this is hard, hard work. It does get easier. The work itself is never easy but it does get easier and while it's not the worst thing I've ever done to reach out to someone in sobriety and talk to them for 30 minutes I can build it up in my head to where it's just something I can I can hold off on and put aside and not something that has immediacy because it's not an emergency it's really easy for me to only need people when I need people and it's only easy it's really easy for me to be of service when it's obvious sometimes being of service which is a very big part of my recovery it's a cornerstone of my recovery uh being of service you know being conveniently of service is isn't really work in the program waiting until somebody's in an emergency state to actually be there for them while important and i'm not downplaying that if that's the only way that i'm being of service then i'm not really being of service i'm being conveniently of service and i'm not practicing my humble art or whatever the the wording was. Exactly. I'm not workshopping and I'm not on stage. So even if I just show up to a meeting and I don't get an opportunity to share, staying for a few minutes afterwards and talking to somebody that maybe was struggling in the meeting or a newcomer, or even somebody I haven't seen in a little while, just to check in, let them know, hey, you can talk if you need to, or that people are here, people care and listen to people, you know, when they, when they speak and remember things that they've told me. If somebody's working on a diet, it's been a while since I've seen them, just Mention that like hey how's that going how are how are things with the kids how's that job interview you went for be participatory to the people around me and the stories that they tell me it doesn't always have to be me being there only when shit is terrible because quite honestly the bottom line is if i'm not there for people when things are going well then I'm not really the person they're going to reach out to when things aren't. And so that kind of lets me off the hook, right? Like now I don't have to really, really worry about somebody reaching out when shit's getting really terrible for them. I, You know, it, it does happen. Some people do reach out, but I kind of limit that list of people if I'm not really participating in their day-to-day lives. And so that's that's me workshopping. That's me doing the small things to better my craft, being more active in my recovery doesn't just involve me doing a podcast and showing up to meetings. It involves me actually embracing the folks that are in my fellowship and being of service to them, whether they are in an absolute need of that service at that moment. So I you know, the first time I listened to this, I I even recorded something a little different was, you know, about how it applies to my hobbies and shit like that. And I just completely missed the point. While all that kind of stuff might be important, you know, how am I perfecting some craft I've, I've decided that I'm going to take on in my recovery. I need to be passionate about my recovery again. And I need to maintain that passion, even when that passion wanes. And the best way to do it is to just do it. So I hope somebody got something out of that uh, if you have a different way of looking at this than I did, you know, reach out to the Facebook that I mentioned, reach out to my, my email. Uh, I've mentioned tophatpainter at gmail.com. The other one is one atheist in AA at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter and Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA and on Facebook, same same thing. I'm trying to make it as easy as possible for folks to reach me. So if you have a different take on that or you feel like maybe I hit the nail on the head for you as well, whatever it is you want to say, please reach out. So with that, let's get into the reading. Uh, I know this is running a little long so hopefully the reading won't go too terribly terribly long Uh, though I do have a feeling this is going to be a little bit longer of an episode just because there is a solution has a lot it's a meaty meaty subject there's a uh, there's quite a bit to unpack there is quite a lot of god stuff and there's quite a lot of ways that you can look at this so hopefully I can bring some of that to the table but uh, you know without further ado here we go We of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill. Nearly all have recovered. They have solved the drink problem. So, just right out the gate, right? They have solved the drink problem. Right, this is something I love about this older group of of drunks that got together and did their best. Again, when they wrote this book, man, it wasn't like they had decades and decades of sobriety under their belt they just had the belief that this shit was going to work and they believed it enough that they put it on paper and they kind of put their name behind it so and that's another uh this is another instance where they use that word recovered which is interesting for me because i do hear people say you know i am so and so i am a recovered alcoholic and i gotta say man i think fucking 80 percent of them are just doing it to troll the group uh there's a few that are probably doing it very genuinely because they feel that it's appropriate for them to say recovered since the book does say it but when i hear it like a fundamentalist meeting and i do encourage somebody to go to a fun just one time if you have one in your area you know here in my area it's called scullies it's old old school you know old school skid row style aa very fundamentalist if it's not in the book you don't talk about it you don't read from it you don't say it and man you use the word recovered and for some reason it really upsets people even though it's in the book it's very it's a very strange place to learn a very unique version of this program. It really was the first time I was opened up to the idea of just how much AA has changed from the old days, you know, from when this was basically the gospel, which also just sort of reiterated in my head that you can interpret this differently, that you don't have to take it exactly as face value, but there is an importance to at least reading it from the words that are written. Like it's, It is significant to at least have read this book. You can move away from it and do whatever you want. But for me, and this is, again, this is somebody that that I don't really believe in a form of like ritualized religion of, you know, this is gospel. You can't stray from this. I I just feel that with how much history there is from people getting sober from having used this book, that I should at least use it as a jumping off point to explore other forms of sobriety, like start here as all these other groups have, you know? man, I'm probably repeating myself so much with this. I do apologize for anybody that feels that this is a little redundant. If it seems that it is, or that I just keep going over stuff that's unnecessary, please let me know. Uh, you know, drop me a comment again at that Facebook group. A, you know, if not there, then you can send me an email at tophatpainter at gmail.com or leave a comment on wherever you're listening to this podcast, but I probably tend to ramble a little bit, uh, and so without somebody checking me like my sponsor would be if we were reading this, uh, it kind of can lose track. Uh, So apologies for that. Um, We're going to move right into this again, hopefully make it past the second paragraph here. We are average Americans. All sections of this country and many of its occupations are represented, as well as many political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. We are people who normally would not mix. But there exists among us a fellowship, a friendliness, and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. We are like the passengers of a great liner the moment after rescue from shipwreck when camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. Unlike the feelings of the ship's passengers, however, our joy in escaping from disaster does not subside as we go our individual ways. The feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element in the powerful cement which binds us, but that in itself would never have held us together as we are now joined. And yeah, that was my first experience with AA way back when I was just a teenager and I was trying to, you know, garner interest from a girl that I was sort of dating. When we went, it was at 10 o'clock, so it was a later meeting in the evening, 10 o'clock at night, I guess I should uh, clarify, and so what we saw or what I saw was just a weird mix of dudes, man. Mostly guys. There was, I think she was the only girl in this particular meeting. It was like truck drivers. I think two of them were truck drivers. It was a couple of folks that worked at like late night in a factory. It was like just blue collar, just normal guys. Right. But then there was also, uh, somebody somebody was just getting off the streets. There was me, little goth kid, you know, just fucking obsessed with stupid stuff like icp and marilyn manson and the girl that i was kind of seeing who was very active in aa but was like 17 16 very young in the program but who liked these kinds of meetings because they were all like crotchety grouchy old ass men for the most part I just remember seeing that and then like a couple other meetings later where it was just completely night and day from that. And it was like, you know, soccer moms and shit. And then there was the XCon, con and then there was, you know, just this just, just range, man, of different people and feeling like kind of at home with just that. And as I got older and go to more meetings, I've realized that while they are kind of a mirror of the section of town that they're in, it's not always the case. Like I like going downtown to some of the meetings and I see... Seriously, just the weirdest mix of people, man. And I love it. That's the kind of groups of people that I used to hang out with when I was sober. So it was comforting to know that those groups existed here, that actually that was just kind of how it would come about. You know, I've met people that were lawyers. I've met people that were police officers. And I've met people that, like me, were ex-cons. Like, I just met the biggest range. And I really enjoyed that. And that's sort of a selling point, I guess, for me also to continue with the program because... Yeah, we're all just sort of struggling to make it through this whole BS together. And it doesn't matter that we all come from all these majorly different backgrounds. Uh, The the purpose of staying sober is still there. Like the, the primary goal is still all of us staying sober. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree, and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. Okay, (laughs) maybe not always harmonious, and maybe not always brotherly, and maybe not always agree, Uh, but you know, you get the point. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. An illness of this sort, and we have come to believe it is an illness, involves those about us in a way no other human sickness can if a person has cancer all are sorry for him and no one is angry or hurt but not so with the alcoholic illness for with it there goes a annihilation of all the things worthwhile in life it engulfs all whose lives touch the sufferers it brings misunderstanding fierce resentment financial insecurity disgusted friends and employers warped lives of blameless children sad wives and parents anyone can increase the list We hope this volume will inform and comfort those who are or who may be affected. There are many. Highly competent psychiatrists who have dealt with us have found it sometimes impossible to persuade an alcoholic to discuss his situation without reserve. Strangely enough, wives, parents, and intimate friends usually find us even more unapproachable than do the psychiatrist and the doctor uh for some reason this is all capitalized i don't remember if this is in the other books i am not going to scream this (laughs) but it is emphasized but the ex problem drinker who has found this solution who is properly armed with facts about himself can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. So I really like this passage. It just sort of reinforces the fact that, you know, back when this program first started, people were so desperate to quit drinking. And that isn't to say that people are not desperate now. But there was a different kind of desperation back then, it seemed like, where they worked the steps within a few hours. You know, someone would come over Saturday morning at 10 o'clock while the other person's still bleary-eyed and and sort of drinking coffee through his hangover. And then by the time they left at like 6 that night, they were done with the steps and they were on ready to go to go help the next alcoholic. I think the first time I did the steps, it took me like six months. And the second time I got sober, it took me like a month and a half or two months just to get through the fourth step. And I was in prison. I had all the time in the world to work on that stuff. So... It is a different kind of pragmatic approach that I think that they had back then that while I'm sure it worked for that time, I appreciate that when I worked the steps this last time with my sponsor, it was kind of at our own pace. It was while we read this book and it was in kind of weekly increments, not for any reason that I wasn't you know prepared or ready to do the steps, but I just think it gave it kind of an organic feel and it made it seem much more natural to me to do it that way. What I do like is that there are no hard rules as to how fast anybody should be doing the steps. Though personally, I think that when I got to my fourth step this third time, what I found was I just needed to sit down and do it. And I think that's that's an important factor. And that stuff we'll get into later. But yeah, I just really like knowing that While it was kind of appropriate back then to just do this in an afternoon, that that isn't a hard, fast rule. That the man who is making the approach has had the same difficulty, that he obviously knows what he is talking about. That his whole department shouts at the new prospect that he is a man with the real answer that he has no attitude of holier than thou, nothing whatever except the sincere desire to be helpful, that there are no fees to pay, no access to grind, no people to please, no lectures to be endeared. These are the conditions we have found most effective. After such an approach, many take up their beds and walk again. I don't know what that means. Why I don't know why you need to take up your bed. I'm guessing it's sort of an old-timey phrase to just kind of mean that you like... Get get up get up off your ass and and get to work. i d I don't know. None of us makes a sole vocation of this work, nor do we think its effectiveness would be increased if we did. Uh that I don't necessarily think is true anymore. I think plenty of folks in AA make this kind of their life, and that's what keeps them sober. Um listen, man, there's busybodies in here. There's people that are gonna get all up in your shit because this is what they have to do, and this is the the kind of career they've given themselves. For them, this is the the work that they love, uh, just like what was talked about in, in the reading. And while it can be really obnoxious, I'm not going to lie when when some of these folks get all up in my shit. What I've noticed is while that might be true, they're the first ones to really worry about me when I'm not at, at a meeting. When I was going to these older, more non-secular groups, yeah, you know, they're the first ones to call me like, hey man, I haven't seen you in a week. How you doing? And there's something special about that Not everybody's going to enjoy that. I get that. Not everybody's going to really appreciate the folks that do live in the meeting halls. I I think it's just an indicator that this is what they've chosen as their their love. This is what keeps them sober. So no, I, I don't think it's necessarily true that none of us make this a sole vocation. There are folks that definitely do. And at times, I have met folks that do that they're like a beacon. Man, there's just something about them that makes their version of sobriety worth really wrapping your own head around, you know? And it's not always the same for everybody. The person I might find who does make this their kind of sole vocation uh, as as an appealing sort of mirror of sobriety that I would want to go after or at least have a bit of that spark that maybe I could learn from isn't the same for everybody, but they're out there. You know, these people that just do this shit all day, go to meetings every day, all day. This is what they do. And seriously, I I personally don't think there's anything wrong with it. Whatever keeps them from, you know, making a wreckage of their life. We feel that elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. A much more important demonstration of our principles lies before us in our respective homes, occupations, and affairs. All of us spend much of our spare time in the sort of effort which we are going to describe. A few are fortunate enough to be so situated that they can give nearly all their time to the work. See, they even mention that. There are some folks that do just have the opportunity to kind of just do this shit basically full time. And seriously, there are some clubs that have survived through really rough times, specifically because there's been like one or two people that just basically live in the meeting hall that are willing to carry meetings that nobody else showed up for, you know? They just kind of will shoulder that burden because they feel that someone's got to and it might as well be them. So hats off to those kind of folks if we keep on the way we are going there is little doubt that much good will result but the surface of the problem would hardly be scratched those of us who live in large cities are overcome by the reflection that close by hundreds are dropping into oblivion every day many could recover if they had the opportunity we have enjoyed how then shall we present that which has been so freely given us we have concluded to publish an anonymous volume setting forth the problem as we see it. We shall bring to the task our combined experience and knowledge. This should suggest a useful program for anyone concerned with a drinking problem. Of necessity, there will have to be discussion of matters medical, psychiatric, social, and religious. We are aware that these matters are, from their very na- nature, controversial. Nothing would please us so much as to write a book which would contain no basis for contention or argument. We shall do our utmost to achieve that ideal. Most of us sense that real tolerance of other people's shortcomings and viewpoints and a respect for their opinions are attitudes which makes us more useful to others. Our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend upon our constant thought of others and how we may help their needs. That does seem really exhausting, right? The constant, co- the constant thought of others and how we might help them. In my drinking, I constantly thought of other people. I just didn't give a shit if I was going to be helpful to them or not. So I guess the only exhausting part is that I find a way to be useful in the world around me while I'm thinking of all these others, as opposed to just obsessively thinking about what they thought of me, or that thing they did that hurt my feelings, or the fact that they don't appreciate, or the fact that they don't recognize all of my efforts, or the fact they keep harping on me about all the bullshit I did. Or, you know what I mean? Just on and on and on. I was perfectly willing to let people run around my head rent free. Now is an opportunity for me to think of others in a way that allows me to kind of, you know, offer payment in some way. You may already have asked yourself why it is that all of us become so very ill from drinking. Doubtless you are curious to discover how and why, in the face of expert opinion in the contrary, we have recovered from a hopeless condition of mind and body. If you are an alcoholic who wants to get over it, you may already be asking, what do I have to do? It is the purpose of this book to answer such questions specifically. We shall tell you what we have done. Before going into a detailed discussion, it may be well to summarize some points as we see them. How many times people have said to us, I can take it or leave it alone. Why can't he? Why don't you drink like a gentleman or quit? That fellow can't handle his liquor. Why don't you try beer and wine? Lay off the hard stuff. His willpower must be weak. He could stop if he wanted to. She's such a sweet girl. I should think he'd stop for her sake. The doctor told him that if he ever drank again, it'd kill him. But there he is all lit up again. They're not mentioned here, but there are a few that I think are just as unreasonable. And I've heard them multiple times, even in meetings from people who are sober. Like, oh, she's such a pretty girl. I just, it's just amazes me that she would get into such a state like somehow our social conception of what is beautiful and the genetics that might carry people to look a certain way that is acceptable to those social standards should just be enough to keep somebody sober like why isn't that enough why why would they fall on hard times they're so pretty it's just it's just so weird anyways let's not get too fucking sidetracked there now these are commonplace observations on drinkers which we hear all the time Back of them is a world of ignorance and misunderstanding. We see that these expressions refer to people whose reactions are very different from ours. Moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely if they have good reason for it. They can take it or leave it alone. Then we have a certain type of hard drinker. He may have the habit badly enough to gradually uh, impair him physically and mentally. It may cause him to die a few years before his time. If a sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warning of a doctor becomes operative, this man may also stop or moderate, although he may find it difficult and troublesome and may even need medical attention. But what about the real alcoholic? Man, (laughs) this, (laughs) this line... Look, this line has given a lot of people ammo to decide if they're a real alcoholic or not. But more importantly, this line seems to have given people ammo to decide if you are. You know, this this is like where they've become, you know, begun to get this metric in AA meetings that's slowly starting to get weaned off uh, the main sort of circuit, I guess, where... Really, seriously, the only primary purpose of getting into the program is is, is a desire to stop drinking. It's not because you are or are not a real alcoholic. That isn't a factor. It's not a metric, you know, but there are people, man, that are just going to have this barometer. They're going to be like, look, you didn't drink like I did, so you're not a real alcoholic. Maybe they won't come straight out and tell you that. Maybe they'll say it in some really weird, offhanded way after you've shared. Maybe someone will say it while you're standing right next to them outside smoking. They just, you know, drop some kind of a real alcoholic truth bomb that, you know, isn't really designed to be at anybody, but maybe it's designed to be at you because for whatever reason, they don't feel that you've drank enough or done enough to earn your chair. Seriously, fuck all those guys. You know, I love everybody in AA in a certain way just because without them, there is no program. But I, I just do not tolerate folks deciding for me if I'm a real alcoholic or not. Quite personally, while I have achieved uh, the three main goals of the real alcoholic of jails, institutions, and death, I don't feel that that's a requirement for anybody else. I hope that my story might help folks that have gone down a similar path. And maybe folks that didn't necessarily need as much pain and misery in their lives in order to make it to the front doors. The goal of this program and the reason why I bring this up is because there are a lot of younger folks that end up walking through the doors that are like, well, I just hadn't gotten to the point to where I've, you know, gotten DTs or was living inside of someone's car that they parked in a driveway for me or I wasn't living on the streets or etc, etc, etc. So I don't know if I even belong here. It seems like I'm kind of going off on this line, the real alcoholic. But seriously, there's people that come in that feel that way. They're not sure if they belong here. The only person that can decide that is the person that's thinking that. <clears throat> All we're designed to do is to offer them support should they decide that. Yeah, I want to quit drinking. We can give them our experience, strength, and hope, and the in the hopes that that what that's what brings them here. I strongly believe that everybody who was involved with creating this program hoped that the bottom people needed to reach in order to come here would raise. I don't think that any one of them hoped that people would suffer the same levels of misery that they did before finding their ways in the doors. When I see someone come in who's, you know, fairly young and has quite a lot more life left, who hasn't the amount of wreckage that I did and was able to achieve at that same age, who's like, I recognize I have a problem and I really know that I need to stop, even though maybe they've never even spent a night in detox, right? or jail, or whatever. They haven't ruined their marriage. I'm thankful that the program has evolved in such a way that they're fully welcome here and we can offer them a solution. They are a real alcoholic because they fucking say they are. I don't care if they are a binge drinker and they've come to AA. Like, they're welcome here. Uh, With that little bit of ranty behavior sorry about that i know i keep saying that i'm gonna try not to rant so goddamn much but there's just a few lines in this book that while i do appreciate the things they're trying to say just kind of rankle you know that's one of them but what about the real alcoholic i don't think i need to keep saying any more on that i feel like i've kind of expressed that well enough but goddamn guys he may start off as a moderate drinker he may or may not become a continuous hard drinker But at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. Here is a fellow who has been puzzling you, especially in his lack of control. He does absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking. He is a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He is seldom mildly intoxicated. He is always more or less insanely drunk. His disposition while drinking resembles his normal nature, but little. He may be one of the finest fellows in the world yet let him drink for a day and he frequently becomes disgustingly and even dangerously antisocial. He is a positive genius for getting tight at exactly the wrong moment, particularly when some important decision must be made or engagement kept. He is often perfectly sensible and well-balanced concerning everything except liquor, but in that respect he is incredibly dishonest and selfish. He often possesses special abilities, skills, and aptitudes and has a promising career ahead of him. He uses his gifts to build up a bright outlook for his family and himself and then pulls the structure down on his head by a senseless series of sprees he is the fellow who goes to bed so intoxicated he ought to sleep the clock around yet early next morning he searches madly for the bodily misplaced the night before if he can afford it he may have liquor concealed all over his house to be certain no one gets his entire supply away from him to throw down the waste pipe as matters grow worse he begins to use a combination of high-powered sedative and liquor to quiet his nerves so he can go to work uh, and we're gonna pause just for a second right there to point out that this is what the second or third time where they have mentioned that there could be other substances that might be equally as much of a problem as alcohol could be. I know it's not the primary one that they're discussing and they're not saying that, you know, this person goes on to become like a pillhead or something. It's very clear to me that even back then it was pretty common for folks to start mixing other substances in with their alcoholism and that it was probably just as difficult to stop those substances. I would say nowadays it's even more difficult because a lot of these substances that you quit... Cold turkey can kill you so there is an importance to have some kind of program of recovery in place that can support the fact that both things might be an issue. Then comes the day when he simply cannot make it gets drunk all over again. Perhaps he goes to a doctor who gives him morphine or some sedative with which to taper off. Then he begins to appear at hospitals and sanitariums. This is by no means a comprehensive picture of the true alcoholic as our behavior patterns vary. But this description should identify him roughly. Why does he behave like this? If hundreds of experiences have shown him that one drink means another debacle, with all its attendant suffering and humiliation, why is it he takes that one drink? Why can't he stay on the water wagon? What has become of the common sense and willpower that he still sometimes displays with respect to other matters? Perhaps there never will be a full answer to these questions. Opinions vary considerably as to why the alcoholic reacts differently from normal people. We are not sure why. Once a certain point is reached, little can be done for him. We cannot answer the riddle. This thing, this ideal in this book that we aren't normal people because we have this kind of ailment, right? It's very old language and I get that. And it sort of, it definitely rankles me now when this sort of consideration is kind of passed around. I don't want people to assume that I'm abnormal because I am sober. I certainly don't feel abnormal because I can't drink alcohol without it potentially destroying my life. You know what I mean? i i would feel like a normal person if i had diabetes i would feel like a normal person if i lost a leg like i would feel like a normal person if i had another debilitating disease that made it so that I was unable to participate day-to-day activities in a seemingly reasonable way. I would still be a normal person. The things that I do when I drink are abnormal. The way that alcohol reacts to my system is abnormal. But I'm a normal person, whatever that even means. And we can get into that philosophical discussion if you want of what normalcy actually is. But I'm not going to go along the lines of saying that we are all abnormal we are all outside of, of the general consensus because we have alcoholism. I don't think that's how this works. And I don't really understand that as being a current way of thinking. So yeah, again, I've said this before, I'll say it continually. There are things in this book and people say it in the meetings, take what works and leave the rest. And I think this is something we can kind of leave by the, the modernized wayside. We are not abnormal. We have an issue that we're trying to overcome in a very healthy and reasonable way. I'm not abnormal if I go to counseling. I just have some shit to work on and work through and figure out. And this isn't me being some sort of a precious snowflake. Language is very important. That's why we choose to identify ourselves as an alcoholic, right? Because language is important. Me identifying myself as an alcoholic, for the most part, is kind of just me acknowledging that I get along better with a group of people that can't get along very well with alcohol. But that doesn't mean I'm ostracized from society because of it. But suggesting that we are not normal people is kind of ostracizing ourselves from general society. And that's not the purpose of this program. The purpose of this program is to make sure that I live a normal life, right? That means we're normal people. So yeah, language is important, and some of it just maybe wasn't as well thought out. I forgive him for that, considering how old this book is, and how little we really understood about this entire thing back then. We know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink, as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. (laughs) I mean, look at this program from the the eyes of a woman, right? Like, if we're going to go with this idea that this is fundamentally written in a correct and godlike manner and it should never be questioned... So far, it's essentially been made clear that women don't ever have to deal with this shit. They don't really have alcoholic problems. Even though it acknowledges in the beginning of the book that some women have joined the program, the writing in this book makes it pretty clear that it's he, he, he. You know what I'm saying? That shit obviously has had to change over the years. It's not the only aspect. I am not going to change the words of this book for that, but I'm definitely going to discuss it when it's weird and wrong. We are equally positive that once he takes any alcohol whatever into his system something happens both in the bodily and mental sense which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop the experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this this is something that they figured out even back then while they were struggling with the concept that women might have issues with alcohol they did not struggle with the fact that there are just some of us man that when we drink we do stupid shit And it's not always, every time we drink, sometimes it goes on for a couple weeks or months or hell even years. But then when the stupid shit does happen, it's bad enough to ruin a lot of lives. It could just completely, erectively destroy our own. We could cause an accident while driving that destroys others. You know, there's there's different things that could happen in a household. There's words that could be said that can't be taken back. There's just so many things that can go wrong. In my case, black out and try to kill somebody and then get out and, you know, assume that because there's been a gap that drinking seems pretty reasonable. That's something they definitely got with this book. And that's something the program definitely gets. You know, I just, yeah, I definitely prescribe to the idea that there's some of us that just are not able to really handle this shit. The difference is, is I don't think that makes me abnormal. I think it makes us in a position to really benefit from all these programs that are designed to make us better. Free shit. There's so much free stuff out here that's designed to just make us better people. I feel like a lot of just, you know, folks that don't have drinking issues don't really have these same opportunities. I feel like they have to pay for this counseling and for these kinds of groups, you know? I don't know, that's probably a real weird, weird take, but it's mine. These observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. If you ask him why he started on that last bender, the chances are he will offer you any one of a hundred alibis. Sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in the light of the havoc an alcoholic's drinking bout creates. They sound like the philosophy of the man who, having a headache, beats himself on the head with a hammer so that he can't feel the ache. If you draw this fallacious reasoning to the attention of an alcoholic, he will laugh it off or become irritated and refuse to talk. Once in a while, he may tell the truth. And the truth, strange to say, is usually that he has no more idea why he took that first drink than you have. Some drinkers have excuses with which they are satisfied part of the time. But in their hearts, they really do not know why they do it. Once this malady has a real hold, they are baff—they are a baffled lot. There is the obsession that somehow, someday, they will beat the game but they often suspect they are down for the count. How true this is, few realize. In a vague way, their families and friends sense that these drinkers are abnormal. But everybody hopefully awaits the day when the sufferer will rouse himself from his lethargy and assert his power of will. The tragic truth is that if the the man be a real alcoholic the happy day may not arrive he has lost control at a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail this tragic situation has already arrived in practically every case long before it is suspected. Now this is something I think is interesting to me specifically and maybe others as well or I'm sure others. I don't know why I've said it that way. I, When I told my story about almost killing myself or really actually trying to kill myself, a few weeks before that there was this instance where I just felt so completely and absolutely overwhelmingly hopeless about my situation that I completely forgot about this program. I just completely forgot that there were even options or that there was a solution. I just thought I was never going to ever be able to possibly pull myself out of or recover from the situation that I was in. I was completely in the control of my drinking. The most powerful desire to stop drinking is of av- absolutely no avail. That really rang true in those moments. You know, I remember texting my friend and just being so absolutely overcome with complete despair that I just, I, you know, I crumbled onto the floor and just balled my fucking eyes out because it just seemed so hopeless. There's not very many times in my life where I felt this way, just completely without hope. Well, yeah, it's amazing to me that I felt that way, even knowing of AA and how the program could help me and and all that stuff and just completely forgot it. There was this powerful desire to stop. I didn't want to keep doing it. I didn't want to keep drinking. I didn't want to keep killing myself. I didn't want to kill myself. I did, but I didn't. Like, it's very weird dynamic that was going on at that point I wasn't sure a hundred percent that the kind of you know the the attempt at death was on its way but once that feeling took root that there just was no option for me there was going to be no help that was it basically that was the the death knell so I just I guess I say that is just kind of a reminder to anybody that feels that they're hopeless, that there just isn't any chance at salvation, that there's just no way that you can come back from the things that you've done or that you can never get away from this feeling that you'll always feel this way. It's just not true. It really isn't. There's always an option. There is always a way. There is always a person to help. It's not always on just you. But sometimes reaching out is the part that you need to take responsibility for. I really hope that if you know, anyone out there is listening and they feel like they're in that position where they have forgotten the options that are available to them, that they happen to just see this podcast and start listening to it. And maybe they're hearing, oh, you know what? That's right. I can go to AA, I just gotta, you know, make some of this weird shit fit in my head. Anyways, the fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against that first drink. The almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us. If these thoughts occur, they are hazy and readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. There is a complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. The alcoholic may say to himself in the most casual way, it won't burn me this time, so here's how. Or perhaps he doesn't think at all. How often have some of us begun to drink in this nonchalant way and after the third or fourth pounded on the bar and said to ourselves, for God's sakes, how did I ever get started again? Only to have that thought supplanted by, well, I'll stop with the sixth drink. Or what's the use anyhow? When this sort of thinking is fully established in an individual with alcoholic tendencies, he has probably placed himself beyond human aid and unless locked up, may die or go permanently insane. These stark and ugly facts have been confirmed by legions of alcoholics throughout history. But for the grace of God, there would have been thousands more convincing demonstrations. So many want to stop but can't. There is a solution. Almost none of us liked the self-searching. The leveling of our pride, the, confle- the confession of shortcomings which the process requires for its successful consumption. But we saw that it really worked in others, and we had come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we had been living it. When, therefore, we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, there was nothing nothing left for us but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. We have found much of heaven, and we have been rock- rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence, which we we had not even dreamed the fourth dimension of existence some tim leary shit right there honestly i feel like that's kind of like that pink cloud man that people talk about when they first get sober because i'm going to tell you right now i don't live in a fourth dimension of an existence I, i i can't reiterate enough i feel normal i feel like a regular person like i have maybe more hobbies than i should and there's times in my my life that maybe i Went about collecting X's like Pokemon cards, but while I might agree with the idea that we should identify ourselves in a meeting as an alcoholic, just as kind of like part of the membership process. I don't, I don't feel like I should be wearing a giant fucking A on my head, right? Like to let people know ahead of time, hey, I'm an alcoholic. Hey, what's up, buddy? I'm an alcoholic. Hey, you driving that bus? I'm an alcoholic. So yeah, by all intents and purposes, I am a regular fucking everyday nerdy dude, man. Man, that thing got, I guess that got me riled up, the whole normal thing. The great fact is just this and nothing less, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us, which we could never do by ourselves. Now, obviously, for me personally, I yeah that's total bullshit. But I think the purpose of that really for me is, well, one, I can just completely omit that paragraph entirely and it does nothing to harm my recovery. So getting stuck on that isn't really helpful to me. Like, it's not going to benefit my recovery for me to be like, but it says God stuff and I don't like god stuff like it really just it, it doesn't even phase me reading that because i can just like ignore that completely it doesn't do anything for me so it shouldn't do any harm to me it's not a failing of the entire program because some folks left that in there and it doesn't mean that i can't exist in this program as an atheist just because it's its existence is prevalent if you are as seriously alcoholic as we were we believe there is no middle of the road solution so that you know whatever if you are seriously if you are as seriously alcoholic as we were right okay maybe i again i still feel that the intention of this program was hopefully to raise the bottom you don't have to be fucking skid row you don't have to have destroyed multiple companies you don't have to have destroyed your marriage if you feel like you're on the verge of these things if you feel like you know your work day's is fucked up because you keep showing up hungover whatever the reasons are that you feel that you need to quit drinking because it's an issue in your life that's all that's required there's no levels You just might get along with folks that maybe have a story that's closer to yours. And you'll be surprised to hear that I think I should take a quick pause here to kind of explain myself. I'm not mocking the people who wrote this book. I am, if I were alive when they wrote this book, I would have gladly pointed out, look, man, like quit putting a metric on this. That's not helpful. There should not be a metric on how severe of an alcoholic you are. It's not a contest or a race. It certainly isn't one I want to win. I don't want to be the one in the front of that where it's like, I'm the worst alcoholic, motherfuckers. Yeah, like I don't want that. I don't want other people to be that. I just want people to get sober, including myself. So yeah, there's points of this where I take kind of issue because it feels like it's omitting others who could use this program and I think a lot of people get stuck on some of this part of the language where it's like well I'm not that bad so clearly I don't belong here you belong here and I and I'll pause and keep pointing that shit out but I also just don't want think and want people to think that are reading this that I have a complete disregard for this program or this book I just don't think it's above criticism And I think some aspects of it should clearly be pointed out as being either disingenuous or just flat out wrong. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible. And if we had passed into the region from which there is no return through human aid, we had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could. And the other, to accept spiritual help. This we did because we honestly wanted to and we're willing to make the effort. That to me is the part that's important. If you're at that crossroads and you're like, well, I can either continue this until I die or I can find help, then there's help. Doesn't necessarily mean it's spiritual. I think spiritual is just another word for something completely unexplainable happening as a result of doing some things you may not understand. I don't have a degree in psychology, but I know that some psychiatric practices help me get better and make me feel better about my life. I believe in that process, and when I do, my life gets better. It's very much the same thing with this program. A certain American businessman had ability, good sense, and high character. For years, he had floundered from one sanitarium to another. He had consulted the best-known American psychiatrist. Then he had gone to Europe, placing himself in the care of a celebrated physician, the psychiatrist, Dr. Jung, who prescribed for him. Though experience had made him skeptical, he finished his treatment with unusual confidence. His physical and mental condition were unusually good. Above all, he believed he had acquired such a profound knowledge of the inner workings of his mind and its hidden springs that relapse was unthinkable. Nevertheless, he was drunk in a short time. More baffling still, he could give himself no satisfactory explanation for his fall. So he returned to this doctor, whom he admired, and asked him point-blank why he could not recover. He wished above all things to regain self-control. He seemed quite rational and well-balanced with respect to other problems. Yet he had no control whatever over alcohol. Why was this? He begged the doctor to tell him the whole truth, and he got it. In the doctor's judgment, he was utterly hopeless. He could never uh, regain his position in society and he would have to place himself under lock and key or hire a bodyguard if expected to live long. That was a great physician's opinion. But this man still lives and is a free man. He does not need a bodyguard, nor is he confined. He can go anywhere on this earth from where other men may go without disaster, provided he remain willing to maintain a certain simple attitude. Now, look, you can just decide that everything in that little section is 100% absolutely true, that someone went to Carl Jung and was like, help me, and the doctor's like, man, you're hopeless. There's no help for you. I can't really believe that that is 100% accurate. I think that maybe some portion of it might be, but I also think they're selling a book and they're not selling a book to make a profit, but they are selling a program. I think that the purpose of this was really just to describe that. Yeah, if you feel that you've reached a point to where it is utterly hopeless and nobody can help you, or it seems like nobody can help you, there is a solution here. I I really don't think it was intended to be described as if you go to a psychiatrist, they're going to tell you to fuck off. That's kind of what it sounds like they're saying, but I don't think that was the intention. Some of our alcoholic readers may think they can do without spiritual help. Let us tell you the rest of the conversation our friend had with his doctor. The doctor said you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I have never seen one single case recover where the state of mind existed to the extent that it does in you. Psychiatrists don't fucking talk like that. I'm going to tell you right now, psychiatrists don't say, man, I've helped a lot of people, but uh, you're not one of them. And I don't think you can be. So kick rocks. I mean, there are there are obviously situations in high, high extreme cases where maybe somebody's, you know, schizophrenia is so far gone that a certain doctor might not feel that they know how to treat that person. But we're talking about alcoholics, man. And I think some people in the psychiatric field may have felt that they were not equipped, but that doesn't mean that they felt that other people somehow recovered and you couldn't. Like, I don't think that was the way that they were actually going to describe that to somebody anyways our friend felt as though the gates of hell had closed on him with a clang he said to the doctor is there no exception yes replied the doctor there is the doctor who just said that he can't be helped this doctor who just said (laughs) i've never seen one single case recover but you know there also is a, is a way for you to recover, anyways. Exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. To me, these occurrences are phenomena. They appear to be in the nature of huge, huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. For me, that personally, that's exactly what this was. I didn't have some major spiritual awakening. God didn't come down from his cloud touch my forehead and be like i'm here bud we got you it was, it was a complete upheaval of all of the things in my life that I knew were wrong and that weren't working for me. It was just a situation where all that stuff was put on display. For once, I could see it with clarity. I was destroying myself, and there was no reason for me to do it. There were no angels. There was no music. This wasn't God for me. It was just my brain telling me, you've had a enough, dude. Move on. It's time for you to get sober. Like, you've tried everything else. You've literally tried everything else, including killing yourself, and that." wasn't successful. Let's go ahead and just give this AA thing a real shot. Let's give this sobriety thing a real shot. Let's see how that works out. Here's the reasons why. That's what my experience was like it was a huge emotional displacement and rearrangement. Back to the reading. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men, are suddenly cast to one side and a completely new set of co- conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. In fact, I have been trying to produce some such emotional rearrangement within you. With many individuals, the methods which I employed are successful, but I have never been successful with an alcoholic of your description. Upon hearing this, our friend was somewhat relieved. For For he reflected that, after all, he was a good church member. This hope, however, was destroyed by the doctors telling him that while religious convictions were very good, in his case, they did not spell the necessary vital spiritual experience. Here was the terrible dilemma in which our friend found himself when he had the extraordinary experience, which, as we have already told you, made him a free man. We, in our turn, sought the same escape with all the desperation of drowning men. What seemed at first a flimsy reed has proved to be the loving and powerful hand of God. A new life has been given us, or, if you prefer, a design for living that really works. I don't have to go too much into detail on that, right? We're kind of past that point. We... I feel I understand that my situation was very much along the lines of me just finally waking up, I think, from a dream, even though I was in the midst of still, you know, being highly under the influence of alcohol. Like, I just there is a moment of clarity that I can recall And kind of a voice of reason inside myself that was like, dude, what are you doing? Enough's enough. I don't think it was a loving hand of God. Whatever it ultimately was that was living inside myself that finally shouted in my own brain to stop doing this. Uh, I'm thankful for it. I just don't think it was something necessarily spiritual it's just something i didn't understand and i was kind of irritated that it waited so long but whatever <laughs> the distinguished american uh, psychologist william james in his book varieties of religious experience indicates a multitude of ways in which men have discovered god we have no desire to convince anyone that there is only one way by which faith can be acquired if what we have learned and felt and seen means anything to at all it means that all of us whatever our race creed or color are the children of a living creator we with whom we may form a relationship upon simple and understandable terms, as soon as we are willing and honest enough to try. Whatever those having religious affiliations will find there are nothing disturbing to their beliefs or ceremonies. There is no friction among us over such matters. Again, if if you can plug any religion in, you can you can leave religion unplugged, <laughs> and you're going to get the same result. All all I feel that is required. Is me understanding that if I do the things in this program, I'll get sober. And I'll stay that way. And I'll stay that way in a way where I'm continuing to grow as a human. I'm not just stagnant and dry drunk. And fucking angry all the time. That I can become... Satisfied with the life that I'm leading in a healthy and meaningful way while staying sober. We think it no concern of ours what religious bodies or member identify themselves with as individuals. This should be an entirely personal affair, which each one decides for himself in the light of past associations or his present choice. Not all of us join religious bodies, but most of us favor such memberships. Now, look, I... In my early days of recovery, uh, when I was attending meetings that were a little too God-heavy for me, or maybe the meeting itself would get a a little too far into clearly Jesus, Pentecostal, whatever kind of behavior. I'd read this passage as my share if I were given the opportunity to share. Just as kind of a subtle reminder that this isn't a Jesus Christ group. This isn't a specific God group. And that, yeah, there's some people here that are maybe Muslim or Jewish. Or atheist or whatever. Like, you know, if if you are going to be all about the Jesus, that's a personal matter. And it should be kept as such. Tell us how you've used whatever form of religion you have to continue to stay sober. But don't tell us that Jesus Christ is the only path to salvation and that all of us are damned or doomed to go to hell because we don't believe. And don't do it in some sort of a weird offhanded way that makes us all feel uncomfortable. Like there's no reason for any of that. It's not like I run around talking about your God's dead and you're an idiot for believing it. And I don't do it in a weird offhanded way in my shares. So, yeah, I kind of expect that that isn't what happens when other people share. Like, I don't want to hear a televangelical style, you know, Jesus Christ is great. And it says that we shouldn't be doing that very clearly in the text. Again, a lot of this text is fundamental all all the way up until uh, I'm going to believe in just Jesus Christ and that God is my savior. We're going to close the meeting with the Lord's Prayer. And if you're Muslim, bummer. Like, or if you're an atheist, bummer. Like, I just, you know, I don't know. It just very clearly says that, right? Like, you know, we don't want to be too specific. And if you want to be specific, that's great. But that's your own personal deal. And maybe kind of leave it outside of the group. In the following chapter, there appears an explanation of alcoholism as we understand it. Then a chapter addressed to the agnostic. Ooh, boy. Are we going to have fun with that one? That's going to be, has to be a two-parter. There's no way I can get through that without without getting fucking sidetracked multiple times not if i'm getting sidetracked this much and just the like little bits of stuff i've read, read so far many who once were in this class are now among our members many who once were in this class we're a class of people now agnostics are a class of people they're a separate class it's weird surprisingly enough we find such convictions no great obstacle to a spiritual experience And that part's kind of true. I mean, there are people that are atheists that still feel there's some kind of spirituality in this. They, you know, feel that there's spirituality in meditation or at least feel that what they experience is so unexplainable that it can be chalked up as saying it's spiritual. And that's fine. I'm not going to judge any of that. I am going to. I just said I'm not going to judge any of that after just judging a whole bunch of shit within reason. Don't decide it for me. Don't make the entire meeting uncomfortable because you're talking about stuff that's very personal to you. Not saying that the meetings can't be about that. People talk about personal shit in the meetings all the time. They talk about very personal events that happened, very personal experiences that happened. But, like it says, "...we think it no concern of ours what religious bodies or members identifying themselves with as individuals. This should be an entirely personal affair which each can decide for himself in the light of past associations." So yeah, I mean, I I guess I, I do come across a little judgy when people go outside that. And it seems like go in a direction that can make a lot of people feel uncomfortable unnecessarily. That doesn't mean that we don't share personal experiences that might make people feel uncomfortable. But in those instances when we're talking about our personal stories, when we're talking about the damage that we've done and the ways that we've successfully overcome that damage, that uncomfortability does have a purpose. There's a reason why we talk about that stuff. One is a matter of survival, another is a matter of making others feel comfortable, and and you know, finally, it's a part of the process of the program. Me telling you for 15 minutes that I'm a believer of Jesus Christ is not a part of this program. Further on, clear-cut directions are given showing how we recovered, how we recovered. These are followed by three dozen personal experiences. Each individual in the personal stories describes in his own language and from his own point of view the way he established his relationship with God and my own personal point of view of how I didn't. These give a fair cross-section of our membership and a clear-cut idea of what has actually happened in their lives. I do appreciate the book having this at the end. I think a lot of it was because people may not have been able to get to meetings and at least they can hear stories that experience strength and hope. And I think it was important that they kept expanding that i really liked that there is kind of a swing you can tell where it goes from uh you know the old-timey kind of language that we're hearing now to a much more modernized language and the stories change you can see the bottom raising in the experiences shared at the end of the book we hope no one will consider these self-revealing accounts in bad taste Our hope is that many alcoholic men and women desperately in need will see these pages and we believe that it is only by fully disclosing ourselves and our problems that they will be persuaded to say, yes, I am one of them too. I must have this thing. And again, for me personally, that's the whole point of all of this. At the end of hopefully this podcast, any episode, any portion of it, I hope somebody's like, fuck, okay, you know what? I think I'm I think I'm willing to give this a shot. I think I'm willing to try AA from this angle, even if this isn't the program you stay with, even if this is just a program you use as a fallback, because like me, you want to be in a position where at no point you're not without aid. At no point you're not without something in front of that first drink. You know, if that means going to a meeting where they talk about Jesus Christ for 20 minutes, then fucking, you know. That's just what I feel like personally I'm going to be willing to do. Because quite honestly, listening to somebody talk about how much they love God fucking isn't worth dying over. Even if I wrinkle at it, even if I rant about it, even if I go off in this podcast about it. I'll fucking sit there and listen, man. Let somebody talk about this shit for fucking 30 minutes. I, I, fine. If it keeps me sober. And then I can go about trying to find a much more secure version of this program that works specifically for me. But there is no telling where I'll be in life. There's no telling what country I'll be in, what city I'll be in, what neighborhood I'll be in. What situation might occur. I could be out of town and get some just fucking god awful news that for whatever reason in that instant makes me want to drink. And I just need a place for a few minutes, for an hour, where I can just calm my shit. Hopefully talk to somebody else that may have gone through the same thing that isn't going to be, you know, feeling weird about the fact that I'm really struggling with not wanting to drink. You know, like there's just I'm repeating myself. I know I am because I think it's just that important that people understand that the purpose I have here is to just make this as accessible as possible, even if it isn't going to be your home. And with that, that's going to be the end of this episode. I really hope some folks have gotten something out of this. And again, you know, I know there's going to be people that are potentially listening to this that may find my take on AA as a whole kind of irritating. And that's fine too. Share that with me. Come down to my Facebook. An Atheist Reads the AA Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Shoot me an email, tophatpainter at gmail.com that's kind of a temporary email that I'm going to be using for now. And I think that brings us to the end of the episode. I look forward to having you back on the next one.